In the late 17th century, as the American colonies began to grow, so did the need for spiritual revival. By the early decades of the 18th century, the lostness, depravity, and moral decline among the colonists was apparent. Thus, pastors across the colonies began to call for the need for revival through prayer. One small group meeting in Saxony in 1727 committed themselves to a 24-hour prayer watch. This small meeting led by Count Zinzendorf began what was ultimately a 100-year prayer meeting. Not many years after the Moravians began to pray for the nations, that revival began to kick off among the colonists. What would then what would then become called the First Great Awakening occurred in the 1730s into the 1740s. Over the years, this small gathering began to grow. This small gathering of prayer warriors began to grow such that the Moravians began a ministry whereby they sent over 300 missionaries over this 100-year period. The desire to pray for for the nations, to be evangelistic, led to genuine revival among the colonists. As the colonists grew rich, so their morality grew poor. And the need for revival rose up. But it was prayer that sparked the desire to see the lost reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to us that God uses prayers the prayers of the saints, to bring about his purposes of salvation. It doesn't matter how big the church is or how small the church is. It doesn't matter how long the church prays, but that the church prays. And in this section in 1 Timothy, Paul is calling on the church there in Ephesus to pray. That one of the ways a church can get oriented to the gospel become gospel-centered, is through prayer. We're going to see this morning that prayer has a distinct role in the life of God's people to bring about a gospel-centeredness. Now, just to remind you of where we've been, Paul has just concluded the opening chapter of the letter, uh, the opening introduction. He's called on young Timothy to order the preaching and teaching ministry of the church in Ephesus. He's called on them, him to preach faithfully, what we would call expositionally, to center the life and ministry of the church there in Ephesus on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in these, what would be the main body of the letter, Paul calls on Timothy to practical application of preaching and teaching Gospel-centered ministry. Paul turns to give further attention to the gospel by reminding young Timothy that it is to remain central in the life of God's people. And he focuses here in these early verses of chapter 2 on prayer as the means of keeping the mission of the church in focus. That as God's people, that we are to be evangelistic people. We are to be people who are about the gospel, not merely when we gather together, but when we disperse throughout our lives. Where false teachers had wrongly focused on a select group 
an elite group of followers primarily made up of Jews, the saints in Ephesus were to have a universal appeal. They were to tell everyone about Jesus and call sinners to repentance and faith. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, though Jesus saves a particular people, he calls universally all to repent and believe in him. And it is the regular prayers of God's people that bring about the evangelism of the world. With that in mind, I want us to look and consider these first few verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you don't ever pray for your pastors as they prepare to preach throughout the week, uh, perhaps this week would be that week for you to pray for your pastor as he prepares to preach next week about how women need to remain silent in church. We're all looking forward to that sermon. Well, this week, though, see, this is a unique Sunday. That's why Pastor Scott and Miss Teresa are leaving and won't be here next week. Now you all know why it was this Sunday and not next Sunday. Always leave on a good note, brother. Isn't that right? Always leave on a good note. Second Timothy chapter 2, or 1 Timothy rather, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, what is Paul's point? It is this, that Christians should pray for all people without distinction because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people without distinction. This morning, the purpose of our time is to encourage us to pray for all people. And there's one caveat that is going to be the main thrust of this this whole sermon. It is for all people. We need to know and understand what does Paul mean that the gospel's for all people. How are we to pray for all people? How are we to do this? Well, I see in this passage six reasons why we should pray for all people. So if you take notes, there's six points to the serpents. There's six reasons why we should pray for all people. All right? So Paul lays forth a very clear argument here in these few verses of why we are a people that pray for everyone. Number one, 
we see that we are to pray for all people because we are commanded to pray for all people. Now, that seems pretty simple, doesn't it? We're told to pray for all people. Therefore, we should pray for everybody. It's, that's pretty clear. We, we're commanded to pray for all people. Secondly, we'll see in verse 2 that we are to pray for all people because it produces gospel fruit in our lives. That when we pray for all people, not just for the people we want to pray for, but for all people, without distinction, it generates, it produces in our life gospel fruit. We'll see thirdly in, in verse 3 that, that we are to pray for all people because prayer for all people pleases God. You want to please God, then pray for all people. Fourthly, because God's purpose in salvation is for all people. God has a desire for all people, he says, to come to know the truth. Fifthly, the fifth reason why comes in verses 5 and 6. Because Christ died for all people. That's why we ought to pray for all people. Because Christ Jesus died for all people. And then sixth and finally, we'll see in verse 7, that we ought to pray for all people because Christian ministry is for all people. It's, it's not for a, a, a small minority group, but it's for all people. We need to understand that it's for all people. Well, number one here in verses one and two, we see that, that we ought to pray because we're commanded to pray. Now, this here is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Look what he says. First of all, then I urge or I command, I'm telling you to do something, young Timothy, that prayer, or he lists a number of prayers, be made for all people. We see the primacy of prayer. He, he begins this by saying, first of all then. So, so Paul here is shifting into the main body of the letter where he's going to give a series of subsequent instructions. And look what makes the top of the list. First of all then, he says, I urge that prayer be made for all people. If you were to set the Apostle Paul down and ask him, what is it that the church in Ephesus needed the most? He would have said, prayer. Now, they needed to have godly elders, and they needed to have godly deacons. They needed to know that they were the pillar and buttress of the truth. They needed to know that they needed to fight the good fight. They needed to care for their widows well, and their widows needed to live well. But all of that was subsequent to the need and the primacy of prayer. That is, that prayer for the nations was to be primary over all other instructions in the letter. If you, in other words, a, a, a church that doesn't pray isn't a healthy church. And so, one of the primary goals of all local churches, one of the primary responsibilities is to be a praying people. And I hope you get a sense of that each week as we gather. We spend a lot of time on prayer. Prayer... Prayer isn't just a transition point in our service, you know, so that, the, so that the people up here can get in their seats down there. You've been to that church. It's all right. right. Many churches treat prayer nothing more than, than this transitional time in the life of the church where they can get the sets in order. No, we gather to put a primary focus on prayer 
And this is why we see also in verse 1 the importance of prayer. He says, he doesn't just say, hey, I, 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 you know, Timothy, if you, get, if you get time to pray, do it. No, he says, I urge you to pray. The, the word he uses there is a, is a word to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort. He is telling, he is commanding in the strongest way possible, you need to give yourself to this, Timothy. Don't let this get to the bottom of the list. I urge you to do this. We see also the distinction of prayer. He, he lists a number of types of prayer. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, there's been much to do about nothing with these. Uh, each of them really talks about the same thing. And, and I think the aspect of what he's after here in this, by listing these sort of four types of prayers, supplications, of course, praying for uh, prayers for others, pray, prayer, the word prayer generally, intercessions, you know, interceding for someone else, praying on someone else's behalf, and of course, thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for the gifts he's given us of life. One author said it, said it this way, that this list demonstrates both the inclusiveness of prayer and the importance of prayer. In other words, Paul's point isn't for us to sit and think about all the different ways we can pray, but to motivate us to pray. In other words, there's a lot of things to pray for. And if you've ever sat down to make a prayer list, you've experienced that, right? I mean, it's like exhaustive. Prayer is exhaustive. We will never run out of things to pray for. And if you are, then you're really probably not praying for the right things. It is exhaustive, isn't it? Every hour I need thee. Right? There's a reason why that song has like 20 verses to it. It's to stress the point that we need him every hour. Every hour I need thee. I mean, there's not a second that goes by where we're not some, in some way bended on our knees before God. As Paul would tell the church in Ephesus, that we ought to pray at all times in the Spirit. With all kinds of prayers and supplications. Or in the church in Philippi, he would say this to them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your, let your requests be made known to God. In everything, in every aspect of life, there's, there's this intersection where prayer of the saints, or for example, here in 1 Timothy 5, he tells those who are truly widows, those who are left alone, what is it widow should do? What is it that she should give her time to? Well, to set her hope on God and continue in supplication and prayers night and day. We ought to pray a lot, Paul says. There's an urgency in prayer. We are commanded to prayer to pray. And notice here who we're to pray for. We ought just to pray for ourselves, pray for our our. Our bumps in the road. Notice what he says. Pray be made for whom? All people. Now I want to point out to you, as I hope to emphasize it when I read, the frequency by which Paul emphasizes all. Seems to be his favorite word in this passage, isn't it? If you read through it again, you'll notice he uses it in almost every single verse. Verse 1, for all people. Verse 2. And all who are in high position. Verse 4. 
God desires all people to be saved, right? For there's one mediator between God and the man of Jesus Christ who gave himself, verse 6, as a ransom for whom? For some? For all. And so, we must rightly understand what all means if we are to rightly understand what Paul is telling and commanding Timothy to do. You see, if you misunderstand all in this passage, your theology on the gospel is going to get really messed up. Because if you think that what Paul means that you are to pray for all people is that you are to pray for everyone, then you misunderstand because that's impossible. How can you pray for everyone? There are billions of people that live on this planet. You will never know all of them. How will you be able to pray for them? More than that, what does it mean that Christ Jesus died for all people? Or, worse than that, what does it mean that God desires all people to be saved? I know a lot of people that aren't saved. Does that mean that God's desires have somehow fallen short? That God can't really accomplish what he's set out to accomplish? No, no, no. Rather, if you take the entire content and context in mind, Paul is after all to mean to pray, not for every single person, but that we ought to pray for all people without distinction. In other words, we could modify all, or people rather, with every kind of person. Every type of person. You might say, well, where are you getting this from? How, how is it that you understand that this is about ethnic diversity, not universality? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 7. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of whom? The Gentiles. In other words, Paul is tipping his hand here at the end to help us understand now for you and i we think of gentiles we think of like that's like you know like american or italian right no no, no. gentile is an inclusive term to mean everyone but jews all right the word itself means the nations right the ta ethne the people groups of the world so a gentile is a people, a person of this world. In other words, what Paul is after in by using all people is that from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we ought to understand that the gospel and our prayers ought to be for all people, not just the people that are like us. You see, the false teachers were teaching that the gospel and therefore prayer was only for a strict few and not for all but as we'll see as we move throughout this passage it makes clear that prayer ought to be for all types of people or for all people without distinction because the gospel is for all people in fact revelation in the book of revelation there is this wonderfully beautiful passage that that gives us a glimpse into heaven doesn't it and heaven ain't a bunch of white people thankfully Right? No amen on that. That's sad. That's sad. That's sad. Um, but that after I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from where? From just America? 
from just Europe? No, from, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. For in heaven is made of, of all people without distinction. All people. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Our evangelistic efforts through prayer is for all people without distinction. We ought to have our, our minds gazed upon the reality that God is about saving all people. Not merely the people like us or whom the people we like. Calvin says it this way. The apostle is saying that no nation or race is excluded from God's salvation, which is offered to everyone without any exception. This is why Paul gives application in verse 2 to the phrase all people. Look what he says. He says, I want you to pray for all people. And, uh, and there's a particular group of people whom you might not be inclined to pray for. Whom you might say, mm, they don't make my, my prayer list. Look what he says. For kings and all who are in high position. Now, contextually, historically, um, the Rome, Romans weren't friendly to Christianity, all right? I mean, they were executing Christians, they were arresting Christians. It would be natural that one would not want to pray for those whom were, were persecuting you. Yet Paul says we ought to pray for all people, not merely the people you voted for. You see, as Christians... We ought to understand that even those who oppose the gospel should make the top of our prayer list because God is about saving sinners, not saints. That Christians should pray first and foremost with an evangelistic bent or aim. We ought to aim at the salvation of all people everywhere. And I'm going to get to this a little bit more in just a second uh, when we think about civil authorities and praying before i do that i want you to read i want you to listen to this from calvin on civil authorities and and i thought man it was as if calvin was writing in the 2021 maybe 2016 for christians he says the one thing that mattered was that christ's kingdom should be extended listen to this listen to this this is calvin writing in the 16th century he says this Human depravity is not a sufficient ground for not supporting something that God ordained. In other words, he's appealing to those in governing authority as being ordained by God. That God appointed princes and magistrates to preserve mankind. No matter how much they fail to do this, and boy, do they sometimes fail. He goes on to say, we must never stop supporting what God willed. Paul wants us to think about, Calvin says, what God wants these rulers to be, not about what kind of people they are at present. Out of love, he says, we should be deeply concerned about the salvation of everyone whom God calls, and this should reflect in our godly 
In other words, I'm just kind of quoting, I mean, kind of maybe hopefully not misquoting what he's saying here. What Calvin is saying is stop complaining and pray that God would save their souls. There's a lot that we can disagree with those in governing authorities, but how much time do we give to the conversion of their souls? You'll hear the way Pastor Rod and I will pray oftentimes, and I try to emphasize this in my pastoral prayer when I pray for like the President of the United States. Do you know, I know, I know Fox News probably misleads you on this point, but let me tell you that there are Christians in the White House, all right? And did you know that those Christians have the ear of the president of the United States? And did you know that might hopefully, prayerfully, be the gospel? Do you, do you have that kind of hope for even those who you, you politically disagree with? I mean, what a wonderful thing that would be to see someone whom we politically oppose come to know Jesus Christ. Brothers, sisters, we ought to pray for everyone without distinction. Here Paul offers political leaders as those whom we might not be inclined to to pray for. But in our lives, we know that there are all sorts of people. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses our enemies. We ought to pray for those who persecute us, he says. Maybe it's not that evident Maybe it is that you only pray for those who are like you, who think like you, who look like you. We ought to guard against such boundaries to the gospel by praying for all without distinction. There is, I believe, a correlation between prayer and evangelistic instinct. In other words, what I mean is is that you will be more instinctive to evangelize those whom you pray regularly for. If you pray regularly for those whom you don't agree with, you will find yourself more inclined to share the gospel with them. Prayer is a posture that reveals what we care most about. And so, do you care for the souls of men? Do you care for people's souls? Then pray for their souls. For folks, well, we're good Baptists, right? And we emphasize the new birth, being born again. Did you remember, if you remember right, um, that's the work of the Spirit. That cannot be affected by the will of man. You go back and read John 3 and what Jesus argues there. You can't make anyone a Christian. That's the Spirit's work. So logic would dictate that you and I engage in spiritual warfare by talking to the one whom can affect change in the lives of others. The Spirit. So let us pray. And let us pray for all people. Number two, we see that we ought to pray for all people because it produces gospel fruit. I won't spend a lot of time on each of these. Of course, I wanted to hit that first one well. Notice what he says. He goes on in verse 2. There in the middle of verse 2, you'll see that Paul is a little comma and then the word that. Often in Pauline literature, that means either a result or a purpose. 
Sometimes it's unclear whether it's both and or one or the other. It seems inclined that this is a purpose statement. There is a purpose to pray for those particularly in authority over us that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, when we pray for all people, it produces in us godliness. It produces in us a gospel fruit. Now, in the context here of praying for those in authority, Paul is is meaning that we, we ought to live such a life that should lighten the load of civil authorities and not increase it. As Christians, we shouldn't be those who are burdening those who are tasked by God with the authority, but we should be lightening that through our civil obedience, right? More than that, he goes on to say that we ought to be godly and dignified in every way. You see the correlation between those who pray well, those who pray often, and those who are godly. In other words, our lives are characterized by a manner of behavior that indicates one is about ordinary and therefore worthy of respect. In other words, when people see you, they're like, yeah, this this person's dignified and they're godly. Are you known for that? Paul links this correlation between both prayer for secular authorities and a peaceful life. And let me just encourage you again in in means of application as we think about in the context of these verses that we ought to pray for those in authority. We just cannot stress this enough. Uh, How how often do you find yourself praying for the superintendent of the school district? That God might give him wisdom or her wisdom. or, Or how often do you pray for the police chief or the fire chief or, you know, you know, the senators or representatives, I mean, I mean, just pray that God would be at work in them, keep them safe and healthy and give them wisdom and guidance. Surround them with those around them that can give them godly wisdom and, and counsel. We ought to regularly do that in a way that's not merely aggressive, but is honoring to them and life-giving. Prayer has a great benefit not only to those whom we pray, but to the one whom We ought to pray because of the great benefit to us. Thirdly, we see here in verse 3 that we ought to pray for all people because it pleases God. Aren't we people who, who want to please God, to honor Him? Notice what he says. This is good, and it pleases, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Our instinct as Christians ought to be to bring glory to God, to honor Him, to bring Him pleasure. Thus, when we pray for all people, it is a measure of pleasure to God because we're obeying him. You see, when we obey God, it brings him pleasure. When you pray for all without distinction, when we pray that that the nations would know that God would bless not only this nation, but, but all nations, that God would work in the lives by redeeming people for his own glory. It is good and right. I'll be honest that obedience in this area is particularly difficult. It's hard to pray. This is not easy. This isn't something that just comes naturally. Something you have to work at. And it, 
But we, have, we need to understand that when we pray, we please God. When we are tempted to disobey, we need to understand that it is our obedience, our obedience that is fueled by the knowledge of the pleasure of God. Know that when you obey, it, it is pleasing, he says, in the sight of God, our Savior. Now here Paul begins to shift, doesn't he? From, from application to some theology about God that is to further propel our evangelistic prayers. He calls God our Savior. You see, we ought to pray for all people because God's purpose in salvation includes all people. Look what he says. The God is our Savior, but not only our Savior, the sort of inclusiveness, there or exclusiveness, but rather an inclusiveness. Verse 4, who desires, what does God desire? That all people, again, I'm taking this to mean all people without distinction, all tribes, and nations, not every person, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, there is a universal appeal to the gospel. It is for all. Now, you might say, my goodness gracious, you are really making a, a distinction for which I don't think is necessary. Well, I think Jesus makes a similar distinction. In John chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says. This is the section there where he says, you know, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you're not going to be hungry. If you thirst, you'll never thirst again. Now, listen to what he says in verse 37 of chapter 6. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's exclusivity. There's a particular people that God is saving. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And notice the universality of it. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Now, if you reconcile that and you hope to reconcile that, good God bless you. That's irreconcilable. There, there is a tension that is held in God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to repent and believe. There's a mystery in the gospel. And if you're more inclined this morning to want to have all the answers solved in your life and have everything in order, well, you're going to be quite frustrated. There is a mystery. What, what does it mean that God desires everyone but not everyone saved? Or that he desires all people but not all people are saved? Or that Jesus Christ died for all people but yet not all people? There is a mystery that God is saving a people for his own glory out of humanity. And that whosoever believeth in him, he will never cast away. There is a universal appeal to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me say it this way. We don't know whom the elect are outside of the fact that they repent and believe in Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, this is, man, this is to maybe 12, 13 years ago. I was in a, in a small group setting. A young man, or no, he was an older guy in the class. He was praying over this lady before, before class, and I was kind of listening in to him and and he was praying for her and she was weeping. And he began to pray that, oh God, I pray that she might be one of the elect. That you might save her if she's chosen. 
clearly that 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 man had lost the gospel at that moment. He's what many have come to call a hyper-Calvinist, one who a little hyperactive in his Calvinism, a little over-applying um, the doctrines of grace and not reading the whole Bible and understanding the tension between that God is calling a people unto himself and he's calling sinners to repent and believe that whosoever believeth him, well, he will not cast away. Brothers and sisters, we ought to take comfort in knowing that God's purpose is to save a people for himself. It is not our work, but that it is God's work. The gospel is for all, meaning that no one is too far from salvation. There is an assurance to know that this is God's plan, that God has a purpose. I just read to you the future. It's finished. It's written in stone. It will not change. One day, you, if you are in Christ, you are listed in the Bible. I just read you're you're there. In Revelation chapter 7, you are there. A great multitude, you are there. And you are present, not with just your tribe. Not just with the English-speaking people. You're not there with just the Americans. You're not there with whatever you are and self-identifying as. You are there with every tribe, tongue, and language from all of eternity past, and you are before the throne. It's finished. That ought to give us some exciting confidence to know that God is about saving a people unlike us for his glory. As Jesus would go on to say in that same section in John, I will lose none of that the Father has given me, but that I will raise him up on the last day. You might not understand the divine transaction and the economy of God by which he is eternally purposed to save a people for his own glory, but that is to give us fuel in our evangelistic effort to pray that God would save a nation. Brothers and sisters, this, this community is very, very lost. All right? It needs some Jesus. And we can look at the lostness of our society and the moral revolution going on around us and to see the changing morality. And we can see the brokenness of all that is happening in our culture. But that ought not to grow weary upon us but to know that God is at work to save a people. That should fuel our prayers for the nations. Number five, we ought to pray for the nations because Christ Jesus died for all people. We see a dual aspect here, not only of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but the exclusivity of the gospel. Notice what he says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus rather. Listen to his argument. It's a wonderful argument. It's a very compelling argument. He says, now listen to me. He says, now everybody in the room understands this one truth that God is the creator, right? And, and Paul got all the amens in Ephesus when he said that God has created us. There is a singular creator. God has formed us and fashioned us. He is in authority over us. We answer to him. And all the Jews, all the Judaizers were like, preach it, Paul. Preach it. Yes. 
You picked my favorite Old Testament passage, Paul. God is one. You've quoted the Shema to me. Yes, God is one hero, Israel. Yes, Paul, preach it. And Paul goes on to say, just as there is one God and one authority, then there is only one way to God, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Not only is he talking about exclusivity here, he is talking about the atonement. He mentions, no, he says, he doesn't say the God-man, he says the man. This isn't, you know, kind of the el hombre. This isn't the man, right? This is rather that is, he is a man. He is, an, he is a representative for mankind. He is the atonement for it. He is the substitute for man. He is dying in the place of men. What does it mean that he dies for all? That he is the ransom for all? And again, I do not understand this. That, 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 Paul, that, that Jesus is dying on the cross for every single human being nor for those who in the future we're going to repent and believe, but rather that Jesus Christ is dying as a ransom. He is the atoning sacrifice for God's people, for all those whom would repent and believe in him. As Jesus himself testified that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for not everyone, for many. Or similarly, in Titus chapter 2, verse, one, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And as we think about this question about all and, and the, the distinction of it, I think John Stott, the old, the old preacher from, from London, is quite helpful in this matter. And he says this, whatever we may decide about the scope of the atonement, we are absolutely forbidden he says, to limit the scope of world missions. The gospel must be preached to all and salvation must be offered to all. They're quite simple. It don't matter, fool. We have a little joke we use in our house. I learned this a number of years ago. Uh, the North American Mission Board has one, uh, uh, one of, the, one of the, the core values of the North American Mission Board uh, for its employees is to stay in your lane. So one of the things Dr. Ezell often talks about is just stay in your lane. Uh, you don't need to worry about politics. That's not in your lane. Don't talk about it, all right? Uh, don't get on social media ranting about politics. Stay in your lane, he says. Well, so we joke at the house all the time. We say, hey, you need to stay in your lane. That, that ain't your business. You don't need to worry about that. I'm the dad. You're not. Just stay in your lane. <laughs> I think what John Stott is saying here is stay in your lane. He, he's saying you have a responsibility that is not to figure out all the little intricacies about what God's out, but to stay in your lane. What, what's your lane? You need to preach Jesus to everyone. That's your lane. That's, that's the lane. Right? So we need to stay in our lane. We must then also subsequently guard against the pluralism of our day that teaches that there are many ways to God. Brothers and sisters, they're, they're, the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. It's an exclusive club, brothers and sisters. Heaven is an exclusive club. That may upset some people. That, that, might, that might make some of the folks in our world a little upset. But, but the truth is that Jesus Christ died for a particular people for his glory. 
Number six, and finally, very quickly, that we ought to pray for all people, verse seven, because Christian ministry is for all people. Notice what Paul says. He says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. In other words, he's saying, listen, my ministry is about this. He's, he kinda, he's like, hey, I just want to make sure I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I want you to see what he does here. He says, listen, Christian ministry, my ministry, which is to be modeled by all of us, uh, the apostles' ministry was about being a teacher of the Gentiles. And notice what he says, in faith and truth. Those are synonymous words that we could, we could say re- correlate to the gospel. He, we could say, listen, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in the gospel. I teach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, there isn't a plan B for the Gentiles and a plan A for the Jews. It's all, there's just one plan. That gets back to what he was saying earlier about how there's one God and there's one mediator. There's one plan for all of humanity, every tribe, tongue, and nation, even the Jewish nation. He would say it similarly in chapter 1, that in accordance with this gospel, the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted, Paul had been entrusted with the gospel, and to take the gospel to the people, the language groups, of the nations. Brothers and sisters, the question for us as a church is, is our ministry really for all people or just people like us? That's a question we always want to wrestle with. Well, what barriers are we putting in ministry where we're being exclusive because of ethnicity or economics or social class? Where are we focused on just one group of people rather than all people? Where are we just trying to minister to the poor and maybe at the neglect of the rich? Like as if the rich don't need Jesus. Jesus kind of says it the opposite, right? He's like, the rich has got some real problems. It's hard, he says, for the rich man to get to heaven. I mean, we neglect them? No, we we have to understand it. Does that mean that our ministry is just for the Republicans? Or that only the Democrats need to be saved? (laughs) How are we excluding people from the gospel based on race, nationality, ethnicity, gender, or language? Do Do you personally, in your life, extend the hope of the gospel to everyone, not just merely people whom you like or who are like you? You see, Christians ought to pray for all people without distinction because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for all people without distinction, period. It's for everyone. We ought to cast the net as wide as we can and let the, let the fisher of men gather his crop. We are commanded to pray. There's no wiggle room in this. We are commanded. We ought to pray because it produces fruit in our lives. We ought to pray because it pleases God. Do you want to please God in your life? Then pray. We ought to pray because God's plan is for all. We ought to pray because Christ Jesus died for all. He died for you, for me, and for all those. We ought to pray because our ministry as a church is for all people. I conclude with this, with this, these words from 
again from John Stott. Stott is 100% on board here. Uh, it is the unity of God, he says, and the uniqueness of Christ which demands the universality of the gospel. God's desire in Christ's death concerns all people, he writes. Therefore, he says, the church's duty concerns all people too, reaching out to them both in earnest prayer and urgent witness. Let that be our mission as a church, to be earnest in prayer, diligent in our ministry, urgent and earnest for the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives individually. Let us be a people. Teach us to be a people of prayer for the nations. We pray this for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.